Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. This is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My job here is to seek out the um, the geniuses in their fields, whatever field that may be. I've spoken to over 2,000 scientists, researchers, clinicians, um, etc. Today I have uh, Brendan Egan. He's an associate professor of sport and exercise physiology at the School of Health and Human Performance and the National Institute for Cellular Biotechnology at Dublin City University in Ireland. So we're going to be talking about uh, topics such as healthy aging and um, elite athletes and their performance. You know, what do they eat? How do they train, et cetera? Uh, some of those details. So, Brendan, thanks for coming. I appreciate it, Richard. Thanks for the invite. A particularly sporty person yourself and, you know, why the interest in uh, sports physiology and things like that? Oh, I guess I am a sporty person, um, although I'm not sure that was the reason I got into sports science. Yeah, I play I play Gaelic games, which is uh, uh, sports that are indigenous to the Irish uh, island. Uh, although they they do branch out into where you've got expat societies, but yeah, I've played sport all my life. And uh, in my well, equivalent of U.S. high school, uh, we decide at the end of our high school program about what we'll study in university. Usually, it's a in Ireland, it's defined from when you start um, as to what you'll study for your four years as opposed to the American system where you kind of pick and choose from a suite of, of different options. So I chose something called sports science, which is uh, similar to what the US would call uh, kinesiology. Um, and uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was through that that I, uh, you know, engaged in a lot of different areas in the uh, in sports science because we do things like biomechanics, sports psychology, um, health promotion, uh, illness and injury. Um, but I became interested in physiology and nutrition and uh, that's where my research dissertation was. That's where my master's later became and subsequently what my PhD was on. So um, that's kind of the track that I've been on since I've been young. So let's start with, uh, you know, healthy aging. When do you mm. look at someone, you know, when do you consider them a candidate to think about <laughs> aging in a healthy way? Like their whole life or, you know, especially yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to your 50s? What do you think? Now, that's a great question, actually. You've kind of uh, touched on a really important point is that uh, healthy aging by definition, is a lifelong process. And uh, the World Health Organization, they actually have a model, a life course model, as they call it, um, where they look at factors that will influence how we um, improve our functional capacity, as it's called. So basically, you could take that as muscle strength and, and function, but how we improve that functional capacity from when we're very young up till when that peaks, which I'll come back to in a second, um, and then how that then declines over the rest of our life course. And of course, the uh, area of interest in healthy aging a lot of people focus on is that kind of 50-year-old or 60-year-old onwards. Uh, but in reality, the things that we're doing at a younger age in terms of what influences that peak um, that we reach in terms of functional capacity and in terms of the, at the age that that, um, that occurs at, uh, these are all important parts of the, of the healthy aging uh, picture. So traditionally speaking, people have considered the peak, so so to speak, to occur at about 35 to 40 years of age, and uh, after which there's an inevitable decline in in muscle mass um, and muscle strength and aerobic fitness and so on. And so the question becomes, what are the strategies around training and nutrition 
amongst other things, of course, um, that influence the peak that we reach. And then in terms of the inevitable loss that occurs, uh, what are the uh, lifestyle factors that we can put in place that will slow those declines? Um, I don't think you can limit the declines in the sense of, or prevent the declines, uh, but you can certainly slow them or bend the trajectory on people, let's say, who've accelerated uh, loss at certain times of their life. You can maybe rehabilitate them or slow the loss that, that's occurring. So there's lots of different ways to think about health, healthy aging, but in summary, it is a lifelong process that I think people need to think of. So when you say um, slow the decline, what are the mm. biggest hallmarks of decline and how do they affect people? Is it muscle loss? Is it yeah. you know, like what, what happens to mark the decline? Yeah, so the, uh, I mean, the obvious in, in my discipline in, in muscle physiology, the obvious things we look at are declines in muscle mass or size and, and declines in, in muscle strength um, or function. And the reason I'm using a lot of different terms there is it does vary um, from study to study in, in terms of who you're talking to uh, about how we define those particular outcomes. But in the case of, of muscle mass, um, usually what you're talking about is anything from uh, 1% to 3% of a decline um, per year in muscle mass after the age of 60. Between about 35 and 60, it's maybe a little bit less than that. It's maybe half percent to a third of a percent per, per year. But after about 50 to 60 years of age, it begins to, to really accelerate. Um, but we don't, you know, we don't fade away as if we don't just disappear. There, there, there comes a point where we still have muscle on us. We just have a lot less than what we initially began with. And so the estimate is that between like 40 years of age and 80 years of age, we can lose somewhere between 30, 40, 50% of our muscle mass, assuming that there's no exercise uh, and appropriate nutrition intervention that, that's taking place. So they're the kind of numbers that happen to people in, in just in general terms. But again, there are several studies now that show that lifelong activity, be that strength training or be that um, endurance or aerobic type training, uh, that that can offset uh, that, that rate of decline. On the other hand, if you think about muscle strength or, or muscle function, um, the rates of decline are roughly similar um, in the early decades. Um, but then later on, so particularly over the age of 60 and 70, there's precipitous declines in, in strength that occur again, perhaps related to inactivity and, and, uh, and lifestyle factors. Um, but certainly there's a, um, a discordance, let's say, that occurs in later life in terms of loss of mass and strength. So, we don't continue to lose large amounts of muscle mass, but we can continue to learn lose um, large amounts of strength. So there's greater scope to lose strength and function um, as we get older than there is in terms of, of muscle mass. So it's kind of why my group has been particularly interested in interventions that affect strength and function rather than necessarily focusing too heavily on muscle mass, even though a lot of people are kind of more aware of this idea of, the, of a decline in, in muscle mass that occurs with, with age. Well, are there tipping points associated with a certain percentage of muscle loss or a total, you know, percentage of body weight comprised of muscle? Um, is there preferential muscle loss that's worse than others? Great questions again. So, um, okay, so in terms of uh, loss that's worse than others, I think just logically it, it makes sense that if we lose more uh, muscle from our legs and consequently we, uh, lose muscle strength in our legs, that's really what determines our uh, functional independence. So if, for example, you can no longer get out of a chair or no longer climb stairs, uh, no longer cross the street before the light turns red, for example, these are things that would be um, you know, related to a loss of function uh, in our lower limbs and our legs um, in particular. So we definitely want to avoid that, but equally, that's not to say that we don't want to lose um, function of our, our upper body. Well, think of you know activities of daily living, like taking things out of a of an overhead compartment and on an airplane, for example, is used sometimes as a test, or just reaching into a cupboard or closet to uh, to take things down. You know, these are things we want to be able to do with our, our upper limbs as well. Um, so that's that's uh, yeah, that's one aspect of wear on the body. In terms of the tipping point as such. Um, 
Well, there are there's this uh, clinical condition that's called sarcopenia, um, which refers to the um, age-related loss of muscle mass and, and strength. And um, there are cutoffs that are defined in terms of the amount of muscle um, on an individual. Oftentimes, that's defined in terms of the amount on their arms and legs, which is called appendicular lean mass. Uh, and again, you can look up these thresholds and see where the cutoffs are, where someone becomes defined as a sarcopenic. Also, there are things like walking speed, grip strength, um, ability to get up and down out of a chair five times. There are uh, thresholds or cutoffs for de defining someone as being uh, sarcopenic. But of course, the point I always make is that sarcopenia is really, a, well, I wouldn't say it's an endpoint, but being defined as sarcopenic is not as maybe important as the idea that there's a continuum from robust health down to uh, sarcopenia. And people are, you know, any at any time in their life or somewhere along um, that continuum. And you know, whether you're defined as sarcopenic is probably not as important as just being aware that there are these declines that can occur and we need to always have strategies in place to try and uh, slow those declines. So what kind of interventions have you seen that are uh, more effective than others and why do you think? Well, certainly the two big uh, levers that are being uh, used at the moment for, for healthy aging are uh, resistance training or strength-based training um, regimens and um, then uh, higher protein intakes. Um, it is uh, okay so we'll start maybe with the with the first uh, and that by the way that's not to neglect all the other aspects of, of life like good quality sleep and reduction in stress and so on but these are the ones that when we're talking about muscle mass and function it does seem to be strength based exercise training and uh, and then higher protein intake that seems to be beneficial so in the first case the the strength training interventions again the the literature varies but um, in some instances people studies have shown that as little as one session a week uh, in older adults can be enough to slow the rate of decline typically the sessions that we talk about with older adults are things like you know it's it's um uh, 30 minute sessions it's maybe six different exercises three sets and i, I guess you're you're you and your your listeners will be familiar with the idea of sets and reps but in essence it's a it's a fairly simple exercise training intervention um in some you know particularly for individuals who don't train um, um at, the, at the time that they begin an intervention these types of very limited um uh, approaches can have an effect and so you see studies using as little as one session a week. You see studies using up to, to five sessions a week. And uh, there does seem to be a dose response, uh, certainly. But uh, in the case of, say, the minimum effective dose, um, it can be as little as as, um, as one session a week, provided that it's, it's structured and, and done appropriately. So my group has been interested in ideas of, of what is the, the, low, the least amount that you can do what is the interaction between, say, doing strength exercise versus aerobic exercise? Because, of course, we don't want to forget about the cardiovascular system as well. Um, and again, I would say hundreds, if not thousands, of studies uh, taking place all the time now in, in older adults um, and generally all showing the same thing, that once a, once a resistance or strength-based training program is, is um, providing a, a sufficient stress or overload on the body, um, older adults can readily adapt and uh, either improve their, their strength and, and function or certainly slow down the, uh, the decline that you would typically see. On the uh, protein intake side of things, so the, the RDA is roughly, uh, well, I'll, I'll speak in kilograms because that's what we use in, in, in Ireland, but it's uh, 0 0.8 uh, kilograms per, um, sorry, 0 0.8 grams per kg of, of body mass. That would be the, the RDA. And so the current guidelines for older adults um, would be that you need about 50% more um, than the RDA. Now, at what point in life that that becomes um, necessity, that's really not defined. You know, a lot of the work we talk about is in the over 65-year-old uh, category. You know, is it beneficial to have a higher protein intake earlier in life? I think that um, remains to be seen. But certainly in support of 
resistance training or strength-based training um, adaptations around muscle size or, or muscle strength. Um, there is this you know, evidence base that a higher protein intake will, will support that. Um, and again, whether that needs to be supplement form, real food, um, how that's spread throughout the day, the quantity per meal, these are all things that are under investigation um, in order to try and optimize the, the recommendations that we can give to, uh, to the population. Okay. Um, in terms of nutrition, are you just focusing on protein intake or you know, what about fat and carbs and uh, yeah. are there supplementation that is necessary at different stages that you've seen is effective? Well, that's a good question as well. So at the, the vast majority of research at the moment tends to focus, when we're talking about interventions uh, type studies, tends to focus on um, increasing protein intake. Usually the fat and carbohydrate content of the diet will be kept relatively stable in these types of interventions. And the one variable that changes is the amount of protein that's consumed. Now, that's not to dis, again, to uh, disregard all of the, say, epidemiological uh, research that would look at, you know, intakes over the lifespan uh, in terms of, again, like you say, the micronutrient status, the carbohydrate intake, types of fat, and so on and so forth. So those are things that are important in the overall picture of, of health. But in terms of what's currently being studied for um, these, you know, in support of training interventions, it does tend to focus more heavily on the, uh, on the protein side of things. Again, that's not to say that there's, again, there's increasing interest in things like ketogenic diets and, and low-carbohydrate diets because, you know, of, of some of the reported uh, benefits from a, from a metabolic um, viewpoint or from a weight loss viewpoint um, that, that those diets have, have demonstrated. So I think there's going to be, a over the next number of years, there's going to be more of a merging of ideas around elevating protein and manipulation of, of the other um, parts of the diet in order to see how, how those things interact. And so far, how do uh, older adults metabolize protein? Do they utilize it as well as younger adults? Or are you just trying to cram tons of protein into them in the hopes that yeah, uh, you get yeah, some yeah, of it? Yeah. yeah, it's a complicated question because, um, you know, in theory, you can look at isolated um, protein, ingest a certain amount in an older adult, and look at what happens over two to three hours in response to that. And you can measure what's called the muscle protein synthesis uh, rate. And that is used as a marker of what might happen then in terms of does protein intake of a certain quantity cause uh, muscle growth or improve uh, repair mechanisms and, and so on. But to take that isolated, uh, you know, three or four hour window and then bring that out into the real world and uh, give that, you know, look at how that affects an older adult trying to implement that over several weeks and months. That's a more complicated question. So, um, there's a couple of different things to think about. One is that there's this idea of the anorexia of aging, as it's called. And it, it refers to the idea that older adults are, they have, first of all, less appetite in general. They are, and they're more easily satiated by uh, protein-containing food. So their, their appetite is suppressed, essentially, when they, when they eat a large protein source. Um, and then also some of the protein sources that were traditionally considered are, are, are that form a major part of the diet, for example, things like uh, meat. Um, they are harder for older adults to chew just on a, on a mechanical uh, basis. So translating, let's say, a, a recommendation for a certain amount of protein per day or per meal into real food uh, can become challenging in, in the older adult because we're essentially asking them to eat more protein, but there are um, uh, mechanisms that are at play in, in their bodies that essentially are pushing back against uh, that recommendation. That So that's just on the broader uh, kind of idea of, of appetite. Uh, but if you then get into the, you know, into the real nitty gritty about when an older adult consumes a, a protein-containing meal, there's a variety of differences in terms of the way they metabolize protein that's different to, to a younger adult. So, for example, they, um, less amino acids appear into the bloodstream um, because of the fact that the gut takes up more of the amino acids from a meal 
um, in an old adult compared to a younger adult. So you've, you've got less amino acids within, within the blood. You've got less uh, delivery to the uh, periphery to the muscles because uh, it's been shown that older adults tend to have lower perfusion or, or um, um, uh, delivery of blood to, to, uh, to the muscle. Um, and then because of lower uh, delivery, lower presence within the blood, those amino acids then don't um, stimulate these anabolic pathways in, in muscle, the growth pathways in muscle, to the same extent that they would in, in, a, in a younger adult. So you're kind of faced with the, 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 the prevailing wisdom at the moment is to provide more protein per dose. So to give about uh, 20 to 30 percent more to an older adult per meal than you would to to uh, to a younger adult. Um, but again, you run into the problem then of, of the satiating effect of, of protein. So um, what I would say is that we're we've got some good theoretical uh, underpinnings at the moment, but the practice of, of translating that into uh, into a real world. Um, you know, effective intervention uh, can, can be challenging. We recently just completed a study and hope to get out uh, this year where we took food, um, a food first approach, so to speak, where we coached older adults uh, in terms of how to uh, add more protein to their diet using real food. And it was predominantly based on animal food, so uh, dairy and dairy eggs and, and meat and fish. But um, the feedback that we got now, again, older adults of that generation, the so-called baby boomer generation, they're very resilient. So they do really stick to the types of interventions that we ask them to do. But they, as soon as the study finished, they all complained <laughs> about how much food it was, how satiated they felt. Uh, you know, that's way more than they would ever eat and, and so on and so forth. But it did, the intervention in, in conjunction with resistance training, it did enhance the overall response to training. So, you know, they derived a benefit even if they were uncomfortable doing so. So... I think in theory, like I said, um, the elevated protein intake does benefit uh, the adaptation to training, but how we actually deliver that in a way that's, um, let's say, enjoyable uh, and tolerable to an older adult, that, that, that remains an open question. Again, with so many things going on to confound an older person's ability to eat enough and eat enough protein, et cetera, I mean, it seems mm -hmm. like really that's a call for more than just protein. That's, that means you'd have to look into really the mechanisms of what would support digestion in general, what would support yeah. muscle growth and I mean all that stuff to really make an effective intervention. Yeah, so I think that's where the field is going. So, um, okay, so there are a couple of, if we get into the nitty gritty, there are a couple of key things. So for example, the leucine, leucine is an amino acid and it's thought to be the um, trigger, let's call it, for stimulating the anabolic response in muscle. So there's been quite a bit of interest in the idea of um, the leucine content of foods being the major determinant of whether those foods will stimulate um, an anabolic response or not. So there's been a little bit of interest in the idea of leucine enrichment. So can you take the isolated amino acid leucine and add it to certain foods or certain formulations um, that would otherwise then be, they will have lower overall protein content, but if they've got higher leucine content, um, then that may be a way to um, get a, an, an equivalent anabolic response, but less of a protein um, meal, so less of a, of a calorie uh, burden, let's call it. Uh, so that, that'll be one innovation. Um, on the other side of things, there's people are interested in, in the area of anabolic sensitivity. So that whole um, schematic that I described of where there's less amino acids in the bloodstream, less getting to the muscle, less anabolic signaling. There's another school of thought that would say, well, maybe we can enhance the anabolic sensitivity of the muscle. Um, so are there agents, for example, that could in, uh, help us deliver more blood flow to the muscle. There are there vasodilators that can do that. Um, are, are there um, agents that would sensitize the, uh, the muscle? And there's a, a lot of area, uh, interest in the area of omega-3 supplements um, from, from that point of view. So I think we're moving towards this kind of multimodal type of approach where you've got, you know, 
different types of exercise um, that are either enhancing anabolic sensitivity or you know driving the anabolic response and then you've got a combination of different um, nutri nutrition factors but possibly also kind of therapies as well that are, you know synergism would, would be the optimal response but at the moment a lot of this stuff is being studied in isolation and that's the nature of science sometimes is we want to isolate effects rather than look at synergisms and you know maybe that's something that will change over time um and then in terms of uh i don't know how you break up people's age do you do like 10 year increments or five year and you know if so do you notice again their step functions in terms of ability to metabolize things in terms of mm. appetite in terms of muscle i mean etc like what do you see when you look at the data overall yeah, so that's that's not well described. I mean, there are these kind of arbitrary cutoffs that we use in in, uh, in human clinical trials. Often, it's, it can be that you know there's considered sort of thirty five to forty and under is considered younger age, and then this kind of window of forty to sixty five is middle age, and then sixty five and above is considered older, and over eighty five is sometimes termed oldest of the old. Um, so they they are rather arbitrary uh, in terms of their, their cutoffs and. Um, I wouldn't say the step functions, um, but because you've got such a large age range and you've got a lot of heterogeneity in terms of um, health uh, across those age ranges. And again, remember, you know, you could take in, in a lot of cases, some studies will isolate people who are relatively healthy uh, and they won't include people who've got, say, overt metabolic disease, for example, uh, unless the research group is, is particularly interested in studying, for example, type 2 diabetes or post-cancer rehabilitation or, or things like that. So there is an awful lot of, of heterogeneity and it's not easy to, um, to, to make um, you know, definite recommendations based on you know, a five-year age range, for example, without considering all of the other factors that, that might come into it. If we look, at, for example, in terms of sex differences, you know, whether a woman is premenopausal or postmenopausal, or perimenopausal could have an impact on, on some of these um, aspects as well. And again, I have to admit, in, in our research, we've not looked at that very closely. We've, we've when we've had uh, women who are over the age of 65, and the postmenopausal, we put them together with men, and not that we assume that they respond the same. Because although we have done a piece of research that shows that they do respond the same, relatively speaking, to to resistance training, so there are many other aspects of the metabolism and their health that are very different between men and women. And you know, that's that's part of again the questions that need to be answered in terms of where the research is going. You're, uh, I mean, you know, if you're reductionist too much, you'll never get any any useful data. You know, but then if uh, you know the situation is so complicated. Like where do you where do you land and you know like what do you where do you think there's going to be a, a significant insight coming from? That is a difficult question to answer, but you're you're right in your first remark there is that um, we do tend to try and be reductionist um, because, like I said earlier, if you want to isolate the effects of an individual ingredient, um, then it's best that the only change you make in a study design, say comparing two groups, um, is that you only change that ingredient. Um, and what tends to happen then is that you have a translation of those findings, uh, again, you know, consolidation or synthesis of a number of different findings on various different individual ingredients. And we try and make a best guess as to, as to what uh, or how these things could possibly synergize. Now, there's been a tradition to, to really value these reductionist approaches, but I've seen more recently that there has been a move towards what so-called multi-ingredient, let's call it multi-ingredient supplementation protocols. And we've done some work with, you know, supplements that contain, say, omega-3, vitamin D, small bit of whey protein, small bit of calcium, and so on. Um, but again, the reductionist sort of view would be that if you've got too many things changing that you're not really sure what individual ingredients have in its effect. But 
the more practical person, the pragmatic approach in the real world would be, well, if this particular product or supplement combination works, in inverted commas, then that's perhaps as good of evidence as anything because we want it in people's hands and them actually being able to use it and, and derive those benefits. So I, I, I mean, I'm kind of dancing around your question a little bit, but I, I don't have a good answer in terms of what the what's the best approach to uh, to take or how the research is going to change. But as as one thing that I have noticed over the years that I've been involved in research is that there's been a growing um, appreciation for the role of industry academic partnerships, particularly because uh, I'm in the nutrition space to, to a large extent, uh, particularly the idea of testing the efficacy of, say, nutritional products or formulations or approaches, as opposed to what it used to be, where it was just an isolated individual ingredient and maybe it was more on the mechanistic side of what's going on in the muscle or what's going on in the gut or in the, or in the immune cells. As more industry academic partnerships become funded, there's definitely a lot more emphasis on really taking the real world product or the real world application and putting that to the test um, in, in a research study. And, you know, ultimately funding is the number one issue to get a lot of these types of questions answered. And the more of that, um, like I say, industry academic partnerships that take place, I think we'll get more practical answers answered in, in a lot of ways, practical questions which is answered in a lot of ways. In your research and in your work, I mean, you know, again, you have to be reductionist in order to make progress in one way, but do you reserve maybe a small percentage of what you do for a more holistic approach or a more multivariate approach? Just to, you know, like I've always thought this when people are doing research, again, why not dedicate a small part to multivariate type stuff? Because maybe you'll get like a general directionality. Hmm. This seems to be something that's worth looking at. So now we can do maybe like a, a really focused look at it. But if you don't take that approach at all, then, you know, it just seems like that would be a, I don't know, you may never get there, essentially, you know? Yeah, I would agree with that. So, I mean, you can, you can, you find people whose, you know, career is defined by the fact that they studied one molecule or one nutrient and they've hundreds of papers around that and they really get down to the, you know, to the finer details of, you know, biochemistry and molecular regulation and so on. And that is, you know, outstanding science. You know, oftentimes it advances an understanding of cellular processes or, or um, you know, um, the methodologies that can be used for the analysis of, of uh, cells and metabolism and biochemistry and so on. Um, but like you say, that sometimes doesn't have an, an overall um, real-world value. Um, so like you say, there are other than people, and myself would probably fall under this category, where we're doing more of the human clinical trials. And sometimes we do focus on individual um, more reduction approaches, but other times, like you say, if you put a multi-ingredient nutritional intervention uh, to the test and you observe some trends, again, this is not these are not things that necessarily you can talk about in a research paper just by the nature of the way science is communicated. But sometimes you just get a little lead uh, in the you know you see a pattern in the data, and of course you can fool yourself uh, and, and see something that might not be there. But oftentimes it can be hypothesis generated to use a more of a um, uh, a dirt, let's call it a dirtier approach in terms of how you um, um, provide, say, in this case, a, a nutrition intervention and look at some of the trends within the data and then go after that with a, with a subsequent study. Uh, but you always have to be careful in the way that you um, look at the data, report the data, and not, not to try to find something that's not there. Uh, I think that's, that's a key philosophy you have to have. But it's kind of marrying the idea of kind of the classical scientific studies and, and reporting with the more you know, real world or, uh, focus or practical uh, aspect. And I think, you know, just by virtue of the fact that I've, say, for example, been involved in sport and worked with athletes uh, and done, you know, worked as a nutritional consultant with, with clients and so on, I kind of have that um, perspective that uh, that sometimes I think can be lost if you've 
only ever been just involved in research, um, bench research, for example, as well. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully it's uh, going to lead to fruition in the uh, in the in the. What about the work you do with uh, elite athletes? Any insights mm-hmm. there? And do any of the insights translate back into older people that you know are uh, are not doing so well? Yeah, it's it's remarkable actually. I mean, one of the reasons why I see you know I can have these two uh, parallel tracks with, within my lab group is because they do overlap uh, to a large extent. I mean, a lot of the pathways that we talk about uh, in terms of the regulation, let's say of, of uh, muscle growth and repair, these are things that are relevant to athletes as well as older adults. And while the you know the activation, uh, the magnitude of activation or the you know the dose response and so on, they may differ between older adults. And, um, and athletes, um, there are still commonalities in terms of the pathways and in terms of the, some, to a certain extent, the basic ingredients and the basic premise. You know, and, and athletes were interested in the dose response for exercise as well. We're interested in the optimal uh, nutrition strategies that might benefit recovery or that might be ergogenic, therefore enhanced um, uh, athletic performance directly. So, I mean, there are a lot of parallels um, and uh, they do inform each other, the two, the two tracks. And so it's, it's good to have uh, those two perspectives and students obviously bringing different uh, expertise to the group and, and postdocs and so on uh, there's a lot of um, interaction uh, between the group and different thoughts and it, it can lead to a you know, really fruitful um, research environment but in specifics what what's um what needs to be unique or different about um, nutrition for like elite athletes you know and is it sleep is it nutrition is it other interventions like what, yeah. what really seems to move the needle for them Okay, well, if we're, if we're talking about, let's say, uh, the adaptation to training, I mean, in, in the in the athletes, um, the number one determinant, let's say, of their training response is the training that they do. And so it is, uh, you know, there's a huge amount of research goes into what is the optimal way to train, depending on the sport, depending on the goal, the time of the season, and so on. Um, and so, you know, that gets down to very, very fine detail about the velocity of movements and the, you know, the periodization of that training, the... Um, the uh, sets and rep schemes that might be optimal that provide a stimulus but don't cause undue fatigue and all of these kinds of, of things uh, come into it. Um, whereas that, that's probably less important than the older adults. We're probably looking for just a broader picture of, of what might benefit um, an improvement in strength in the older adult. And we don't really get down to these really, really finer uh, finer details. Um, in the context of, say, recovery from, from endurance, uh, or sorry, from, from exercise training in athletes, um, again, you would focus on things. There's the overall dietary uh, picture. Let's let's not forget about that. But then, in terms of recovery, it'll be things like you know really focusing on the timing of nutrients, the composition of those nutrients. Maybe we're looking at ratios of protein to carbohydrate. Maybe we're looking at the speed at which they're digested. Um, and you know maybe we're including a certain number of micronutrients that might be beneficial, and there are certain nutrition supplements that can speed recovery as well. And again, while all of those things are important to for optimizing recovery in an older adult, perhaps we're not so interested in this, you know, again, really fine detail for optimization of recovery. Maybe we're interested in the broader picture of what is enough um, of a nutrition intervention to, to support training. Um, so it's probably at the level of D de- or while there are a lot of commonalities uh, when it comes to athletes, because, you know, there's a lot at stake uh, in the sense of, you know, earnings, professional contracts, um, success in, in sports and because the margins are so small sometimes between success and failure we do really get down into really uh, fine detail when, when we're dealing with athletes um, when it comes to both the research questions but also the, just the practicalities of giving them advice and and um, helping them out with their with their training and nutrition well you know how you'd optimize an athlete let's say someone that um you know they're a cyclist so you want to optimize mm. their 
you know, they're obviously the cardiovascular output, but they're like muscles and everything yeah. too. What if you yeah. turned turned the model of aging on its head and you looked at older people as reverse athletes and that, yeah. you know, okay, in this population, we need to help them work on their leg strength more than anything because that's really the critical factor that's going to disable these people and lead them towards decline. And in this other population, yeah. it's going to be flexibility and you treat them like reverse athletes or remedial athletes and make specific protocols for them instead of just general ones like, oh, you're old, so do these things and, <laughs> and that'll help you because that wouldn't be yeah. nearly as helpful as someone that old and, and they have bad hip function and therefore that's going to be the, the weak link that gets yeah. them in the end and disables them. You know? Yeah, I think, I think what you're talking about there is the, um, the difference between, say, broader public health guidelines and then the, uh, you know, the, the guiding hands of a, of a good clinician um, or practitioner. And so um, while you can have very broad guidelines in terms of sets and reps and numbers of time to train per week and, and so on, uh, a, good, a good clinician or a personal trainer will have assessed the individual and you know individualize their training um obviously taking account of the broader guidelines but uh, making it more specific like i mean the, the, the examples you gave there in terms of you know someone's got flexibility or mobility limitations the types of exercises that they do need to be to be modified and that as you know as far as i know that does take place for for anyone who's good practitioners someone who just you know wanders into the gym themselves without necessarily any guidance or any program and tries to lift based on something they read on the internet i think that's that's the type of situation where things begin to, to not work so well so i think in in the right hands i think what you described as the individualization of a personalization of, of training and, and nutrition that happens with with, with good practitioners um, so it's it's uh, it's definitely not that we neglect these specifics uh, on an individual basis but there are you know, contribution to the broader health guidelines that a lot of this research makes and then it's put into practice by individuals on the ground. I realized athletes are valued by society and they're praised and people yeah. love them and stuff, but old people, they're not. And, you know, so <laughs> if, if they get into the good hands of the right person, sure. But right. unfortunately, I bet you that that's much more rare than, than not with them. And, you know, so I, I don't know what to tell you or what to do or, you know, but it's just, these are no, just the so, thoughts that are coming out, you know? Yeah, no, I'll jump in there. I mean, I, uh, you know, I speak to the public a, a lot and, um, you know, people hear podcasts like this and they'll, they'll email, me, email me, ask questions. And the most, the question I most often get is, can you recommend someone I can work with who um, will put some of what you talked about into practice? And uh, when I'm specifically thinking now of an older adult, oftentimes I can't. Um, it's really quite difficult because we don't have uh, people who are formally trained in working with the older adult. Now, there are, um, you know, educational programs and uh, personal training type uh, certificates that uh, are add-ons or CP, uh, continuing uh, professional development where you can get these add-ons to, uh, to work, let's say, with, with the older adult. Um, so they do exist, but I would say that the, the number of people who are really competent uh, in that area are, are a small enough in number. That's not to say that that's not going to change over the over the next number of years. And equally, a person who's say trained in the more general sense as as a strength and conditioning coach or as a dietitian or a personal trainer, you know any of these different disciplines, they can certainly upskill themselves by reading appropriately and, and working with that type of clientele. But I, I think we're still at the at the point where we need to um, improve just the uh, the number of practitioners who really know how to work well um, with that particular uh, cohort. So I do I take your point on that that it seems like 
there might be a bit of neglect uh, there. But I think as we become more aware of just the the um, you know the so-called grain of the population, I think that's where a lot of efforts are going to move into the uh, into the strength conditioning space. For example, I mean traditionally all strength conditioning, not all, but let's say a high proportion of strength conditioning uh, specialists probably want to work with with elite performers. Um, but the reality is, you know, from the point of view of the population and the way things are heading, uh, being able to work with older adults um, is going to be just as valuable, probably a, um, a job prospect as anything. So it's, uh, yeah, I think there's definitely a shift uh, occurring in, the, in that regard. You know, I'm sure it's unfortunately not exciting or not as exciting for most people to most coaches and that like, oh, I want to work with with older people that are disabled. You know, they, it's exciting to work with athletes and people that have all these, uh, you know, that set new limits on, you know, in sports. And so, yeah, yeah. It's, I guess it's a, it's a, again, a cluster of factors that uh, that make it difficult. I mean, are there, are there even, I guess they wouldn't call themselves coaches, but are there strength coaches for older people or are they mobility coaches or what do they call themselves? Just, you know, rehab specialists? Yeah. Yeah, so like the the I, I can't speak necessarily too well about the uh, the US system, but in in Ireland, for example, the the practitioners who would be best equipped to uh, to work with old adults would be what we call physiotherapists. Um, so these are people who are trained in in both manual therapy and rehabilitative exercises and uh, various modalities um, that support. Well, I mean, the, it's for all aspects of of health of individuals. You know, they typically work work in hospitals. They can be working in intensive care units or respiratory. Uh, units different things like that but uh, they oftentimes are then trained in musculoskeletal um, health as well um, so they're the types of people that are best suited to that at least in, in the higher system but a, a strength conditioning specialist like I said if you have appropriate training and are upskilled and I guess you know know the limitations and are able to conduct what we call a needs analysis um, of the individual and of where they want to go in terms of their fitness goals most uh, strength conditioning specialists or coaches would be able to to work with older adults but there are certain things that they would need to know, particularly around like um, advanced cardiac life support, for example, and uh, knowing limitations that occur with different diseases. And there's a few different things that they probably need to have in their locker uh, just in order to be fully able to uh, to work competently with, with, with that population. But uh, it certainly can be done. And uh, I would expect that, like I said, uh, a lot of people are probably going to move into that space as, as we move forward in the years. Okay. Well, very good. What, um, you know, I don't really know if elite athletes would... Uh take much from this you know they certainly have their own coaches but for older people um <laughs> what kind of advice general generically would you have someone that's 40 versus 50 versus 60 versus 70 well i think on one hand um i, I don't think there's any example of of a society um or a, a population where they are physically inactive and are healthy i think we have to acknowledge that physical activity is is part of the, you know, health when it comes to, to human, the human condition. Um, now, how that's done um, in terms of where, how you incorporate it into your life, there's lots and lots of different ways to do that. Uh, but doing something is better than nothing. And if it's someone who is currently not doing a single hour of exercise uh, a week, then increasing that to an hour, whether that's one hour in one set in one day, or whether it's three days of 20 minutes, you know, any way that you can incorporate a change in, in physical activity um, is going to be a benefit. Now the question becomes, should strength training be part of that? I would say yes. Certainly as we get older, uh, strength training will need to be a part of that. Does it have to be in a gym uh, setting? Not necessarily. Um, we've done some work looking around bodyweight training, which is you know press-ups and sit-ups and squats and lunges. Uh, and that they can, when done correctly, and again, the right type of prescription in terms of 
sets and reps and, and so on, they can bring about really impressive changes. So again, that's something that that uh, people can take note of. Um, the other point I'd make, you, you mentioned you were sort of going 40, 50, 60, 70. It's never too late to start either. Uh, again, there's been studies done in people over the age of 85 that have not resistance trained in their life before and they get them in and they and they train them and they all make gains in, in strength and to a large extent a lot of them make changes in, in muscle mass as well. So there's any number of, of, of lines of evidence or, or pieces of advice that would say, you know, be active and stay active and try and do as much as, you know, as, as, as you can within, within your own limitations. But I think for anyone who's got, let's say, an underlying um, uh, musculoskeletal issue, say arthritis, or if they've got an underlying metabolic disease, uh, diabetes, cancer, so on, these are things where you really need to see a, you know, a qualified healthcare practitioner uh, in order to get the okay to train and be given exercises and, and regimens that are specific to that that type of disease that type of disease so it is um it's not that you can just do generically just begin exercising you know late in life there does need to be some care given there um, but certainly the aim should be to to get active uh, everyone should be able to get active to, to some level um, that's and, and that should ideally com- uh, contain a certain amount of strength training as well what's the best way for people listening to find out more and to get in touch yeah, so my my um, research gate profile is where uh, a lot of the research that I've talked about is, is published. So um, if you just search my name and, uh, and research gate, and uh, I don't have a social media account of any kind uh, other than research gate, which is more research oriented. So the best place is probably to get me by email. But I'm always reluctant to uh, just pass out my email by by uh, by podcast. So if you can search my name and search Dublin City University, that'll get to my profile page and. If someone's willing to do that and send me an email, then I'm certainly be sure to answer. There's no no problem there. Well, Brendan, I appreciate you coming and thank you very much. Thanks very much, Richard. Good talking to you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.